0: Hi, I'm
1: Anoush. I'm Alva.
2: And I'm Stephen.
1: And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the people who drowned in the channel and the implications for the UK government. And you ask us, did the shadow Northern Ireland secretary, Louise Haig, make a gaffe when she said that Labour would remain neutral on a border pole? We're recording the morning after the horrendous news that at least 27 people trying to make it to the UK across the channel from Calais have drowned um, in what is thought to be the deadliest event in the channel since they began recording these things. Stephen, how is the UK government reacting to it so far?
2: Well, the UK government's reaction is basically to go, this is is so terrible, this is awful, we're going to keep doing the same things that we've done before. I'm shocked and uh, appalled and deeply saddened by the loss of life at sea in the, in the channel. But I also want to say that this disaster uh, underscores how dangerous it is to cross the channel in this way. And that's why it's so important that we uh, accelerate, if we possibly can, all the measures contained in our borders and nationalities bill so that we distinguish between uh, people who come here legally and people who come here illegally. Because essentially, right, the British government response and the French government response, because you kind of do have to, I think, understand the two of them together, is essentially yeah, look, the more enforcement, yeah, you enforce more and the problem goes away. Right, you know, so you, if the French the response is to like, go, more beach patrols, you know, more people at sea. Uh, the UK response is partly to go why aren't, why aren't you doing more of this? We send 50 more million, million pounds a year to France to stop people crossing the channel. Let's, I don't know, build some horrendous camp on the Isle of Wight instead. I actually feel such a worryingly plausible election advert. But, yeah, kind of response is, oh, yeah, more enforcement, pass the borders bill, which will further reduce the number of legal and safe routes. And the problem goes away because you remove the poll factor, right? That is the, the government argument.
1: Right, OK, and obviously it comes at a time where relations between the uk and france are probably at their nadir the worst that i can think of in recent times um do you think this is an opportunity for them to improve relations or do you think it's just going to be another sort of stumbling block among a number of issues you know including the northern ireland protocol
2: this isn't isn't a a, a brexit phenomenon right in the 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 big change that brexit has wrought is that Instead of these deaths, there are still people dying in the Mediterranean, but if we were still in the EU, these deaths would be much more likely to have happened in the Mediterranean because our frontier would have been the frontier of the European economic area. Obviously, we are now outside the European economic area. So our frontier is the channel, which is one of the reasons why there are more of these crossings. So one way that you could reduce it is by, you know, some kind of reciprocal treaty going back into the EA, uh, you know. All of which would require one to have a better relationship with the French government than the British government has. However, I do think you're yeah, having having given the yeah you know, the kind of what their sort of argument is. Where all of this falls down is that the the central reason why people want to come to the United Kingdom, to France, to Italy, and indeed to the United States. Every free developed economy has this problem, right, in that basically people understandably want to have a better life for themselves and their children in a place where they can be free, prosperous... And while it does sometimes seem that government policy's trajectory is to make us a less desirable country to li- live <laughs> in, ultimately, like, you can have as much uh, brutality as you want. We already have an immigration policy, which essentially means that, you know, the British border exists in every workplace, university, every you know, every interaction you have with public life in some way due to the hostile environment legislation does, yeah you know, essentially has a border in it somewhere. We have made it so there is a lethal risk. Um, yeah, you know, we shouldn't forget most of the people who make the crossings on the boats then do yeah you know, are then found to have a legal right to to seek asylum, and even the ones who don't. If I erroneously fill out a planning permission slip to try and get my bathroom redone, Hackney Council doesn't have me drowned in response, right? Yeah, you know, de- you know, death is obviously not a um, you know a correct or morally acceptable punishment for not having a, a a legal right to immigrate. But essentially, unless you have some kind of global action to increase the total number of safe routes everywhere you can like move the problem so you know you don't have to look at it right and and that is you know i say this as someone who you know is an ardent pro-european you know i used to get upset when i would cross over to the schengen border and not be able to you know take advantage of the schengen area but it's let alone now when i go over the border but i do think that some of the discourse about this reflects this kind of weird sort of oh wasn't it brilliant when we were in the eu and we simply didn't have to look at the human cost of this policy as opposed to now where it's like oh now we're not in the eu and the human cost of this policy is right here in front of us but if you want to tackle the policy you do have to have a a global response to create more safe routes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think some of the arguments that, you know, it's worse under Brexit. I get why people are making them because it's harder for us to cooperate with European countries including France because of the ongoing fallout from from Brexit, but I don't agree that it was all wonderful beforehand. I went to the Calais Jungle camp um, in 2016 and, you know, that was before Brexit had happened and even the routes through our treaties with the EU that were were available then to, to migrants were were impossible for them to use. You know, family reunification provisions and and of course the reciprocal thing, the Dublin arrangement, where. Uh, people would be sent back to their sort of first safe country in, in the EU that they landed in w- wasn't working either. So, you know, some of these arguments are disingenuous that the, these kind of things wouldn't be happening if we were still in the EU. I think that that sort of adds to the main argument that you, you've made, Stephen, which is really it is inevitable that people are going to want to come here and they're going to put themselves in danger to do so because they're desperate to do so. The vast majority of asylum seekers in Europe do seek asylum in other European countries. Like asylum um, applications in France are much higher than they are in the UK. I think it's less than 3% of as- asylum seekers in Europe want to come to the UK so already it seems to be a little bit overstated by politicians who are trying to suggest that sort of everyone's coming through Europe to come to the UK and we have to somehow put them off. If you don't have those safe and legal routes which have been, you know, closing, if you look at the way that the UK's resettlement schemes work, they have been closing the Dubs Amendment which was supposed to bring child refugees over to the UK. We only brought over 350 and it was closed in 2017 and there's, you know, nearly 100,000 child migrants in, in 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 Europe Um, so if you look at the way that those kind of schemes haven't worked and that safe legal routes aren't there and the the catch 22 for migrants who are you know in Calais waiting waiting to come to the UK by whatever method they can they can't apply for asylum until they put themselves in danger and use one of these so-called illegal routes. Um, and the Nationality and Borders Bill is only going to make that more difficult. And it's also going to make it more difficult for people who try and rescue them as well, because they've taken away the language that you would be prosecutors if, if you were doing it for gain. So that puts some um, sort of sea rescue services in a potentially grey area. So as long as you make it difficult for people, they are going to put themselves in danger and they are going to drown. So I do think the only real solution to this, if politicians are being honest with themselves, is to make it easier for people to come over, apply for asylum and have their asylum claim processed in a timely way, because there's a huge backlog at the moment as well. And, you know, there is something about the demonisation of the kind of people who are who are trying to trying to seek sanctuary here which is which has been uncomfortable in the past what we are seeing and all the data and evidence has shown this so in the last 12 months alone 70% of those individuals that have come to our country illegally by small boats are single men who are effectively economic migrants. They are not genuine asylum seekers. They are literally elbowing because they're able to pay the smugglers. They're able to get in contact with the gangs, whether it's in Northern France or actually in Germany. These are the ones that are elbowing the women and children who are basically at risk and fleeing persecution. We played those comments from, from Pretty Patel. Like you say, this distinction between economic migrants and refugees, I think is a bit of a disingenuous one. If you feel that you're so hard up financially that you're going to put yourself in a little dinghy and travel across a, a shipping lane to try and get somewhere to to make yourself more sort of financially better off then that means that you are trying to escape something terrible like my, my, so my dad fled Lebanon when he was 21 on a little boat filled with watermelons that he snuck onto from Beirut to Cyprus because he was desperate to flee war and you know the schools are closed and the universities are closed and There was bombing and stuff and people don't leave their families and their homes and their heritage to do that unless they're desperate. And, you know, one other thing that the government could think about is trying to instead of demonising using sort of difficult language about people who are trying to come over is to perhaps make them more palatable to the UK public that we know can be very sceptical about migration. You know, asylum seekers aren't allowed to work mostly uh, when they come here when they're waiting for their claim to be processed. So why not change that? Um, It causes resentment in communities where asylum seekers are settled because people think, well, they're just living off the government. Why not let them work?
2: You know, if as of course you have done much more, much more than I have. If you visit um, any of the towns and villages that are essentially UK border towns now, um, because the people who are seeking asylum can't work, they have. Yeah, mostly vouchers So they have this kind of deeply demeaning horrendous experience when they go to the supermarket because it's obvious that they don't belong uh, in heavy inverted commas there but it also means people can't put down roots they can't get jobs they can't stimulate the local economy which is why um yeah with the greatest of respect to any of our listeners in dover and kent but it is why loads of towns in dover and kent have become increasingly horrible to live in because oh surprise surprise if you fill up homes with people who can't you know buy things, stimulate the economy, then, well, your high streets shut close, your restaurants close. If all you allow them to do is spend a meagre amount of, of government vouchers in, like, the local Sainsbury's, well, then you end up with a situation where the only open shop is, an, is the local Sainsbury's. There was this trend for a while, which I think, thankfully, has now died off, based on the deeply unscientific metric that... Um, no one has yet replied to this morning's morning call telling me that I should use the term a refugee, not migrant. Because like, when my grandmother came to this country, right, she could have, you know, under apartheid, she could have having, a, you know, met a man who was Cape Malay, so they had four tiers under apartheid. Afrikaner, white at the top, and then I always get the next two confused, but uh, mixed and coloured. Mm-hmm. Coloured essentially being, you know, misc. Um, Asian, Cape Malay, like um, I... Uh, biological great grandfather etc etc right like so when my grandmother you know got pregnant she could have uh, dropped down a racial category from from white or as she presume, as she would have said then wheat from white to um, to colored and, you know she wasn't in danger she came to the United Kingdom so that her daughter could have a better life she was an economic migrant that is a legitimate choice too and i find it, it just really gets on my wit as you say no one uproots themselves to like yeah you know, like my grandmother went from being somewhere where she was she you know, she got her first job because she was um, considered well spoken because she said yes rather than yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to any people who do have South African accents to my incredibly bad attempt to do a South African accent. You sound like so, the Queen. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you know, she she went went from somewhere where she was considered well spoken to somewhere she was she sounded visibly foreign. She was horrendously cold. She couldn't get any of the u- usual food she liked, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yep. a much nicer uh, immigrant experience than getting on a, a boat you know with some watermelons but one people don't do this that they have option. but two like this weird way that it was briefly considered like right on to go like oh you know that economic migrant that we shouldn't use the term migrant because that that's that's not as sympathetic as being a refugee it's like no my grandmother's decision to come here was every bit as sympathetic as my great 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 grandparent's decision to come here you know fleeing some p- pogrom or another mm-hmm. from what is now lithuania right like ultimately the right and desire to have a better life for yourself, and it's why yeah that language in that Patel clip which talks about you know these men who are just emigra- em- economic migrants, it's just like well yeah, a, a man a young man has a right to like want a better job and a better standard of living. It's also very untory, isn't it? Aren't we all supposed to be sort of
1: seeking economic
2: well, <laughs> advancement? This this was the the weird thing, and you know, we were at parliamentary of, of the year awards. Alva and I and Nadim Sahawi, yeah, you know, gave a, a very you know moving speech, you know, but he said something which. I do think it's true, right? And it's true of all of the countries that people want to come to, which he was like, look, he said, you know, this is a country where a 10-year-old boy from Iraq without a word of English could become a cabinet minister. And we can have a number of uh, arguments about whether or not his government has made that more or less likely, both from a, actually getting to the United Kingdom and indeed the life chances of, of, of said 10-year-old once they're here. But, yeah, it's just I just do think there should be some acknowledgement, to say that, like, the aspirations and people who want to come here are, you know, ones that the Conservative Party purports to be all in favour of.
1: Yeah. When I went to Calais, the, you know, most of the people there at that camp were trying every night. This was when it was more sort of common to hide yourself under lorries and things um, to get to the UK. And their reasons were usually about... British values if you want to use that phrase you know people mentioned the NHS they mentioned sort of it's a good country it's good to people you can get work there um most people speak English and you know we can talk a bit about the reason why a lot of people around the world speak English but they spoke English better than French and so they thought that they were more likely to find work if they if they could speak the language and also family ties as well because we are historically a nation that is welcoming to migrants. I mean, you perhaps wouldn't think it from the past few years, but we are. And so all of those reasons, you know, I think are things that recommend the UK and are not something for our politicians to to talk down. But like I say, the reality is actually, you know, the the vast majority of asylum seekers in Europe do not try and seek asylum in the UK. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. And now it's time for a section we like to call... ask us." Yes. Yes. Today's question's from Matthew. He asks, were Lou Haig's comments on a Northern Ireland border poll the gaff some are trying to paint them out to be? And how exactly could a British government play a neutral role in such a situation when the decision would clearly be a political one? So this is in relation to some comments that um, got a lot of attention by the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary. Alva, you've been following what she said because it mm-hmm. contradicts something Keir Starmer said recently, doesn't it?
3: I love this question. I'm really pleased that Matthew has, has asked about it. I've had lots of conversations about it this week. Um, yes, yeah, so as you say, Louise Higg, um, was give the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, was giving an interview on uh, GB News. We'll play a a clip of what she said. So, so do you
2: think if there was a referendum on, on Northern Ireland's future, the British government or British political parties shouldn't interfere in that; shouldn't be involved in it.
1: I would, I would, I would yes, I would. Um, I would say that um, you know we're 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 a unionist party in the Labour Party, um, but if, if there is a border poll, then we should remain um, we should remain neutral. I think that's an important principle. Um, look, I believe in the union. Uh, I believe we're stronger together. I believe in the principles and values that underpin our union. But it is a crucial element that has sustained peace um, is the principle of consent and. It, that underpins the Good Friday Agreement? Uh,
3: so this is really interesting. This is perceived as as a huge gaffe, as as the questioner has pointed out, basically indicating that Labour wouldn't be making the case for the union if there were to be a border poll um, over whether to have a united Ireland or not. And it's so interesting because actually this has come up before, within the past six months or year. Keir Starmer did a visit to Northern Ireland. I think we mentioned it briefly on the podcast. Um, and and during that, he gave an interview to Endham McLafferty, the political editor of BBC Northern Ireland, who had him, by the proverbials <laughs> in an interview, asked him what his position would be on a border poll. This didn't come through in the edit. They edited it down, but I heard that he asked him about 20 times wow. what the position would be. And so Keir Starmer said quite a few times, you know, that's up to the people of Northern Ireland a lot but eventually he kind of cracked and said well you know i always make the case for the union them for instance that under a Keir starmer government that northern ireland will, will remain within the uk that there's no chance of any border pull well
2: i respect the principle that the decision in the end is for the people of the island of ireland i personally as leader of the labour party believe in the united kingdom strongly and want to make the case for the United Kingdom strongly, and we'll be
3: doing that. So that's interesting, because what you're telling us then is that if we do reach a point where there is a border poll and people are asked to vote on Northern Ireland's future, that that you won't be neutral in that debate, that you will be very much on the side of unionists arguing for Northern Ireland to remain within the UK, even as Prime
2: Minister. I believe in the United Kingdom, um, and I will make the case for the United Kingdom. Um, I've set up a commission under Gordon Brown on the future of the United Kingdom, um, and so... Um, whether it's in relation to Northern Ireland or Scotland, of course, where there are very real issues um, about independence, or Wales for that matter, I will make a strong case for the United Kingdom. So you don't envisage any United Ireland in your lifetime? Look, I don't think it's in sight, but uh, it's hypothetical. And what does that mean? Is that a no a yes? Well, it's not in sight.
3: It's so interesting because at the time, Keir Starmer's comments were seen as a gaffe, certainly within the party, um, from the people who were with him when he was on that trip to Northern Ireland, the people who were briefing him and prepping him for that question the night before. That was very much not what he was meant to say. And it didn't go down well. In Northern Ireland, I suppose lots of people were sort of privately saying, you know, well, you have to you have to appreciate Keir Starmer. You know, he's very talented in lots of ways, but he's not a hugely experienced politician. And when you have someone like Andrew McLaughlin really going for it, it's kind of hard to, to keep your nerve. So it was seen as a gaffe then. And... You know, and and I remember at the time Labour people saying, you know, oh he accidentally gave his Scotland answer. <laughs> yeah, he, he ended I up think, saying, Well, yeah. oh, I'll make the case for the union." The way Labour would say about Scottish independence, um, and then it's so interesting that, that Louise Haig, several months on, was asked the same question, and she essentially gave the right answer. In the in the Good Friday Agreement, it's you know, it's there like quite clearly that the future of Northern Ireland will be, you know, is a question for the people of the island of Ireland, north and south. It's quite clear in the wording of it. And so really, since then, the British government has sort of committed to the idea that it isn't really for the British side anymore to be commenting on on the future direction of that, that it's only so people in the north of Ireland are entitled to feel British and to choose to remain within the UK but it isn't for a government in Westminster to be making the case either way in a way the the British side conceded that in 1998 and People defending Louise Haig have been resurfacing a clip of Momolum, who was asked about this in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, they're saying, you know, what will happen now? Do you want a United Ireland? Do you not? And she was like, you know, it's like it's not for the Brits. You know, it's not for the Brits anymore. That's the whole point of it, you know, to have peace. It's, it's up to them. But it is just so interesting because when those arrangements were made and, and that, you know, the agreement was signed and so on, obviously after, you know, an, an awful bloody conflict. Scottish independence wasn't on the agenda in the same way. And I think this is so revealing of the way that I think we're going to be talking about the the prospect of a border poll more and more. It's probably worth clarifying. I know lots of listeners will already be aware of this, but in the the Good Friday Agreement, the provisions for a border poll mean that it's, it's worded in a kind of woolly way. But if there's, you know, an indication, probably people gather, you know, f- through storming elections, if there's sufficient indication that a majority might vote for United Ireland in Northern Ireland, then it's it's up to the Secretary of State in Westminster to call a border poll and the border poll would be held in Northern Ireland and then separately in the Republic of Ireland. But it's always sort of assumed that the Republic of Ireland would would automatically vote in favour mm. of Irish unification. That's sort of already a given. It's about whether Northern Ireland would. So... The, the the prospect of, you know, whether a Secretary of State will get to a point where looking at polling, looking at the performance in instalment elections which are coming up next May, if the executive doesn't collapse before then, could be sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be looking for maybe the next five or ten years, maybe maybe longer, maybe sooner, at whether we need to have a border poll in Northern Ireland. So we're gonna be having this conversation alongside the discussion about Scottish independence, and I think that this this is just really revealed that this answer that Louise Haig gave, which didn 't massively please unionists who I think still would like the British government to make the case for the Union, but broadly that takes the box of adhering to the Good Friday Agreement and being a sort of neutral figure, not sort of budding into those affairs. this answer that the plays well here plays terribly in the right wing press in particular here the sun has made big hay (laughs) pun pun, pun unintended (laughs) the sun has made hay of that one and um, I think that'll be rumbling on like any time Labour tries to make the case for the union in Scotland but not in Northern Ireland it'll be really tricky and then Keir Starmer having essentially made a gaffe on this himself months ago it was really perceived that way at home and it was how it was viewed internally he ended up getting it right in terms of um, the the wider British media landscape and so it's just so interesting that there's sort of no easy position on this for Labour and we're going to be having a discussion about Irish unity for I think the next decade alongside Scottish independence and that'll be really tricky for I think all of the parties in Britain to navigate but especially Labour.
2: I'm I'm never convinced and it is as difficult for Labour as Labour have kind of managed to make it seem, right? Mm. And then you're right, then essentially you have this weird situation where the Labour leader is just wrong in terms of the, the policy for all the reasons you've just laid out. And then the relevant shadow cabinet minister has given the answer that is absolutely right in terms of the policy, but turns out to be wrong in terms of the politics. But whatever one thinks of the case for Scottish independence more broadly... An argument that the Labour Party should feel more comfortable landing on and reiterating is, do you know what? Scotland is not analogous to Northern Ireland, right? Like, the big clue there being that in the 1920s, everyone in Scotland could vote on the same terms that they could vote in England, right? You didn't have, like, a large number of people disenfranchised on sectarian grounds in local elections in Scotland. Now, yes, there is more religious sectarianism in Scottish politics than there is in politics in England, Yeah, where there was in, you know, the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, but they aren't comparable. And ultimately, I think, just as I think Labour politicians should feel more fluent and more able when, you know, and actually loads of, um, loads of very thoughtful SNP MPs will very openly go, it is disgusting and ridiculous when nationalists talk as if, like, the empire was this weird thing that happened to Scotland without its interest, consent, or involvement. There are lots of, of SNP politicians and even and many, many more puns uh, in the Green Green Party in Scotland who will explicitly sort of take that stuff on. But I think the Labour Party should feel much more fluent in going, well, no, it's just different, isn't it, right? like Ultimately, uh, self-determination is the right of peoples, but um, there is just a huge difference between a post-conflict society with, as you say, um yeah, because in some ways, right? It's not a political decision, I think, whether or not there is a a border poll. Well, let's say let's say the polls are broadly right, and and at this election, whenever it is, there is a Sinn Fein first minister because the unionist vote sort of scatters a bit to the to the four wins, the three wins. I realise, but the, yeah, the three largest unionist parties, and not just two. Well, you can kind of make an argument that... Maybe, possibly, there might be one, but it's a pretty thin one. I, I, I think. But in any case, right? It's not a political argument. It's a like has this legal requirement been met? Scotland is not a post-conflict society, and yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting example of how. And this is partly, I think, a change in broadcasting norms. In the part of the problem uh, is that in the nineties, even politicians just got to speak longer without being interrupted. They, they they would have been able to do the, well, look, this is different for this reason. And I do think, you know, to do, you know, to do one of my my sermons about media changes, one of the problems with frequently interrupting politicians is it does actually mean you just get a less informed debate because in neither slot, right, was um, Louise Haig or Keir Starmer able to do that. But I do think it is one of the things where actually the politics of it aren't as difficult for Labour as Labour sometimes makes it seem, it just does require them to have a lot more confidence in going, well, look, these aren't the same. But part of I think their weird problem isn't for years, God, I realise you you weren't ever around in the era when Scottish Labour were a thing. But for years, (laughs) I think loads of Labour politicians down south had this sort of nervousness of, oh, that's their department. And if I say anything about Scotland, then you know, a burly man's going to yell at me. And... And then, you know, the Burley men were all wiped out in the 2015 election, but they still have that nervousness of, oh, if I if I talk about Scottish politics, is someone going to shout at me, Uh, which is a real problem for a party (laughs) that wants to revive in Scotland and does want to make an argument for the union in Scotland. Yeah, because I, I did. I do think the origin of Keir Starmer's gaffe was that this is someone who knows knows and feels I think comfortable talking about the issues around Northern Ireland much more than he knows and feels comfortable about mm. talking about the issues around Scotland, which ironically led him to under pressure. The thing uh, listeners will will have missed is that. Alva th- feels about Northern Ireland, gen- Northern Ireland journalists, the way I do about North London's delis. Angela Claphirdy. She glows with patriotic pride every time she thinks of them. But it was really interesting how, under pressure, you saw Keir went. I understand. Uh, yeah, he basically was like, "Oh, I'm scared of Scottish politics," and that is a big problem for them. That they're scared of Scottish politics. I think
3: it's funny though, as well. That I mean, in in the one sense. If there's a border poll, then the position of the Labour Party <laughs> here yeah, is the it's the is, le- is, is kind of the kind of the least of everyone's worries. But but it is it is, I think, interesting. I think it is a, a little bit politically difficult. I think the the position that the British government will take will be quite interesting because this British government really has taken a, a firmly unionist position on lots of issues regarding Northern Ireland. Um, I think, you know, Brandon Lewis doesn't even treat the SDLP with a tremendous amount of respect, I would say, in the House of Commons, he's very firmly unionist and sees himself aligned with that, which makes sense in terms of you know the politics of it. David Cameron did an alliance with the UUP in in twenty ten um, for the general election, which didn't go very well. So you know, the, there's always a delicate dance between the British government sort of being a neutral actor on this versus having a unionist stake in Northern Ireland. That's always been a bit tricky. And so it seems like if there were a border poll tomorrow, this this conservative government would be quite tempted to make a strong case for the union and and would see Northern Ireland through the same prism as it, as it would Scotland in terms of we don't want to preside over the breakup of the union. And then I think that by the same token, if Labour ended up being in government, if this happened in five or ten years, would it sit on the fence and essentially preside over... The reunification of Ireland, the, the loss, quote unquote, of Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom. I think that is quite tricky, especially because there is a spectrum of opinion on that within Labour. So you have this quite pro-union position that they adopt on Scotland. Mm. Um versus, you know, you look through the shades of opinion on the party, people like Louise Haig making a very strong case for neutrality in the Good Friday Agreement and that strong Labour tradition of Momolum and so on, and their role in the Good Friday Agreement and that being this this proud Labour heritage. But then, you know, through shades of the party, you have you do have people on the left of the party who wouldn't even see their sister party in Northern Ireland as the, S- as the SDLP. They would see it as Sinn Féin. Mm. I mean, you know, there, there's, there is a, a strand of Irish Republicanism within um, the Labour Party as well. And so actually reconciling that from quite strong ties to parts of the Irish Republican movement on the left of the Labour Party versus a pro-union position on Scotland that you hear from Keir Starmer, I think that's quite, tricky and it's not going to be top of the agenda but on this i really agree with harry cole from the sun that he said you know it's it's not a burning issue right now but this will be bubbling on for years i think it will be really interesting
1: and of course you've been focusing on a completely different story in this past week haven't you alva
3: yes i've been slightly in the story and so i just wanted to acknowledge that briefly and say thank you to lots of really kind colleagues firstly um but also, really kind New Statesman podcast listeners and readers who have been in touch. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I have written about it in this week's issue of the New Statesman magazine, and it's also online.
1: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shakelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Mae Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe.
0: Confidence starts with loving who you are.